they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who eventually betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, and they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan, he said. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob the house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him, and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? he asked them. He looked at those seated around him in a circle and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thanks, Richard. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. My name's Chris, one of the pastors here. Uh, it's lovely to come uh, and see you. I'm really pleased you're with us, particularly if you're new or visiting or if you're here for the first time. We're really great, grateful you're here. Do come and ask us any questions you've got, or if you'd like to find out more, come and find one of the team at the Welcome Area. We'd love to tell you more about St. Paul's, our story, who we are, uh, and how you might want to get involved a little bit more. And before I begin, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life that it brings, the challenge that it, uh, it gives to us to live differently. And this morning, might we be surprised and challenged again by Jesus, his words and his actions, that we might in some way reflect him to the world in which we live. Holy Spirit, I pray you would come do that within us, in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you remember a few years ago the, the TV series Friends that finished. You know, it's that time in your life where your friends are your family. 
Um, I loved Friends. I think we have the whole box set, you know, 10 seasons or whatever else, and I've seen them all far too often. Um, <clears throat> but it was, a, it was a cultural phenomenon, wasn't it, really? Because before Friends, you know, kind of in the 60s, 70s, even the 80s, you had TV sitcoms that were all centred around the family. So you had A House on the Prairie or, um, you know, even the soap operas. And in fact, even the soap operas today kind of still have family, the kind of nuclear family, even though that's generally fairly complicated messed up and slightly confused but at the center of what it means to be community but friends took that and said you know our families are disparate or separated or chaotic so it's that time in your life where your friends your family those you're closest to family is redefined and changed when we come to this passage here we find jesus completely redefining what the jewish kind of idea of family was um, family life was very different in Jesus' day. The, the family unit was central to everything, to society. Extended families lived together. When you got married, you built an extra room on the family house that your wife would, if you were the guy, would come in, or if you were the wife-to-be, you'd move out of your home and move in with your husband. Business took place within families, and we see earlier in Mark's Gospel when Jesus calls Peter and, and, and uh, Andrew and James and John, they're, they're called from the family business, because families work together, they did everything together. Possessions and finances were shared. The idea of personal and private property, in the way we understand it today, wasn't held in the same way at all uh, in the first century. And you were loyal to your family above almost everything else except God. But God called you to be loyal to your family. So family commitment was held in high regard because it was part of the Torah, the, the law of, uh, that the Jews uh, lived under, that, uh, that, that kind of shaped their identity. Family life was crucial. It mattered so much. And so Jesus' words at the end of the reading we've heard this morning would have shocked to the core his own family who were speaking to him at the time, let alone those around him. Jesus said this, Who are my mother and brothers, having been told they were outside? Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and if you're seated in a circle around a rabbi, you're his disciples, you're, you're the one you're learning from him. You're his disciples, he's your rabbi. And he said, looked at these, these, these guys and he said, here are my mothers, my mother, my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And what Jesus is actually saying is, if you're a follower, you're in the family. If you're a follower, you're in the family. He's blowing apart the strict, exclusive, tightly knit boundaries that define family and saying, no. There's something different, something better that I've come to begin. Jesus completely redefines the family unit in that moment. And we see time and time again Jesus taking something that's sacred, seemingly, to, to the people of his day and redefining it in a way that it was meant to be. So he's done that with Sabbath. Uh, so earlier in Mark chapter 3, uh, uh, sorry, end of Mark chapter 2 into Mark chapter 3, Jesus redefined Sabbath, the thing that had become a boundary marker. So rule after rule after regulation was set around Sabbath, this day, this holy day in the week. And Jesus said, no, you've got it wrong. You've missed the point of what Sabbath is. Sabbath isn't for man, but, uh, sorry, man is not for Sabbath, but Sabbath is for man. It's a day of rest, of celebration, of recreation, of connection with God. 
not just something that you, the do's and don'ts, the list of can and cannots that it had become. And the same with family, is that really family had become almost an idol. It was almost something that was so sacred that to challenge any aspect of it was to, to shake the whole of a, a kind of system of worship. And Jesus said, no, we're, we're, not to, we're never meant to be an exclusive in crowd. We're never meant to just exclude others who aren't part of our family. So a synagogue in, in, in Jesus' day was made up of a group of families. And so it was very hard for an outsider to come in. And Jesus came for the outsider, which is why he seemed to upset so many people, including his own family, his own mother and his brothers. You know, one of the images to describe the church in the New Testament is the family. It's central to our identity, our idea of what church is. And so when we become followers of Jesus, disciples, we become part of the family of God. Our Father is God, and we become brothers and sisters in Christ. And we read this, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8. The spirit you received when you became followers of Christ does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if, we, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In other words, Paul's saying is, is that when you come become a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God comes to live within you, and he acknowledges and is, is the kind of sealing factor that you're now part of a new family. And in the context of Romans, Paul's saying is that God chose you, called you into his family, invited you to be part of the family that he's creating. And as we come to the start of our reading, we see these, the first kind of fruits of the family, if you like, the disciples, the first called apostles. Um, this ragtag bunch of people is this new family that Jesus invites to start. So at the beginning of the reading, we see Jesus goes up the mountain all night to pray to choose the 12 apostles. He comes down and calls these 12 to be his sent ones. They're called to be with Jesus. So in this family, there's intimacy. We're invited into an intimate relationship. We're not invited into to a functional relationship. We're invited into an intimate relationship. We are to know God, just to be with him, to be with our Heavenly Father, to be with Christ. But we're also sent out to preach the good news, to demonstrate the kingdom of God that's now come. There's a purpose to the family. The family doesn't just exist for itself, which is, I think, what Jesus is really challenging. In and of itself, the family isn't just to exist. It's not just to stay as it is. It's to have an outward focus. So why don't we have a look at this distinguished group of the first family, the, uh, the first members of the family that Jesus chose to call. And as we've seen in Mark, earlier in, uh, in the Gospels, we looked at Peter and, and Andrew and James and John. Jesus doesn't go for the, the best of the best. He doesn't choose those who've academically made it, who've made a mark on the world. In fact, um, Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, said this about fishermen and carpenters. Apparently, it's written down that good Jews were never fishermen and carpenters. In fact, anyone who was a fisherman and a carpenter was not a great Jew. That's quite interesting. Seeing as Jesus was a carpenter and most of the early disciples he called were fishermen. It's as if, you know, 
Jesus wants to start, make a point of saying, I'm starting with those who you think aren't even very good Jews, aren't even very good in your own kind of thing. And in Galilee, and you know, Galileans were seen as kind of a backward bunch of people. They were those who lived in the country and didn't really understand the urban ways of Jerusalem. Maybe you can relate to them. I don't know. I'm from the country, I guess, the West Country. Plenty of people who can mock our uh, accent. I'm not even going to try it now. Been out there too long. Anyway, so we've got these disciples. Judas, who was a traitor. Simon, who was a zealot, which is kind of a group of people who wanted to kind of throw out the Romans with violence. You know, anything goes. The, the end justified the means. Thomas, who was a rational skeptic. James and John, who were sons of thunder. I mean, I think that nickname is pretty pretty much like they were pretty hot-headed and fiery, feisty people. Peter, who was impetuous, act first, think later, full of passion, full of zeal. Matthew, the tax collector, the collaborator. And there were others who we know nothing about because they were just anonymous. They weren't, you know, famous for anything much. They just did what they did. It's not really a a who's who of kind of the best of the best, the most influential of uh, the Jews at all. But imagine you, you, you're sat together on, or walking together on a journey and you've got Simon the Zealot alongside Matthew the tax collector, the collaborator with the revolutionary. It's going to make interesting lunch, isn't it? You know, conversation over lunch is going to be challenging. Well, you've got Thomas the rational skeptic, you know, just doubts everything, questions everything. I mean, you just get sick to death. Imagine if you're Peter, who you're just like, I don't care, I'll go for it. I don't need all this evidence and proof. It's all about the heart and how I feel. And Thomas, again, is questioning and questioning. I mean, wouldn't it drive you mad? But then wouldn't, if you were more of a kind of rational kind of person and more of someone who just needs to kind of understand and explore a bit further, be sick to death of someone who doesn't even think about what they believe? You see what's happening? You've got Judas the traitor. Do you know, apparently Judas is the only disciple who had a really good education. I found that really interesting to read. But Judas is probably looking down on everyone else, you know, just... These guys are a bit beneath me. Can you imagine the mixing pot of these 12 together? The constant conflict which we read about in the Gospels that Jesus is having to deal with. The kind of jockeying for position that, you know, I want the best seats in heaven that James and John, and they sent their mum to do that for them. I mean, that's kind of, you know, can you imagine the conflict that that causes? It's like, you know, a hardline conservative politician spending a week with the leader of the TUC. It's like Arsenal and Tottenham fans, you know, sharing life together. Man United and Man City fans, you know, you think of two opposing groups and Jesus just lumps them all together and says, guys, you're going to walk with me for three years. And not only that, you're going to be a group of people who changes the world. God always intended that his family would be messy. God always intended that his family would include people from every walk of life, every political spectrum. From every social background, social class, every tribe and tongue and race, God's intention was people would be there. Because the Jewish people were like, we are the in crowd. It's just for us. And Jesus said, no, you've not got the point of who you are. The point of your identity as the people of God is firstly, you were chosen because you weren't all that great. And secondly, you were chosen to be the light to the world. To be an open, welcoming, inclusive family. And you've turned from them. So in redefining family, Jesus is challenging that introspective culture that says anyone different, anyone outside, we don't want them. We're just for ourselves. And he's revealing this eternal plan that God had, that his family would consist of people from every tribe, tongue and nation, with no exceptions. Because Jesus came to demonstrate God's heart for the world, the whole world. 
Gentiles were now part of God's plan. Romans, women, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, traitors, not just the righteous, but sinners. To blow open the sacred boundaries of family to include these people, these people. And who are these people for us? To include them was absolutely offensive to so many that he spoke to. But imagine if you are one of those on the outside, longing to be part of a family. We know Psalm 68, verse 6, God sets the lonely in a family. If you were on the outside, if you were one of these, uh, if you were a prostitute or a tax collector or a woman or a leper or a Gentile longing to be part of the family of God, isn't this good news? It's great news. So what about for us today? Jesus came to radically redefine the family. If you're a follower, you're in the family. That's the criteria. You follow Christ, the Spirit comes to live within you and confirms and testifies with your spirit, Paul says, that you're part of the family of God. Jesus tears down these exclusive and introspective tight family boundaries and redefines family as inclusive, warm, inviting and large. We've just heard God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God is in his holy dwelling and he sets the lonely in families. So the family that Jesus is inaugurating is space for everyone. So you've got those who've got a large family, who've got children, and those who haven't. You've got those who are unmarried and those who are married. You've got the popular and the lonely, the eccentric and the real, the sinner and the outcast, the seeker and the believer. This is God's family. You've got those who celebrate alongside those who are grieving. People of every social class, every race, every background, regardless of their history, are welcome in this new family. And so for us, as a family here today, as churches in the 21st century, we should be places where we're surprised at the people we find there. The church should be a place where we're surprised at the people we find there. Because really, the church family Wherever that might be, it's the only place where you get tax collectors and zealots walking together. It's the only place where you get those of every age, of race, of social background together under one roof um, it, with one purpose. And that's how it was always intended to be. Paul in Galatians 3 verse 28 says this, Now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. We all stand equal at the foot of the cross. Jesus invites us in because we're all equal to him. New Testament Christianity always upsets boundaries and breaks down divisions. It challenges the walls that we put up. You know, so the early church had to deal with Jews and Gentiles. How are they going to fit in the kingdom together? Two groups that were hugely separate in every way, but who came together in Christ. The church met in a home. And the family unit that Jesus, Jesus wasn't tearing down family. He wasn't wanting to undermine the family life. He was wanting to say, let's make it bigger. Let's enlarge our thinking about what family is. And the New Testament church met in the home. The oikos is the Greek word for it. A place of gathering, a place where people came together. So the home became almost a sign of what the church should be, where people would hang out together, would eat together, would share life together. And the early church made eating and table fellowship, as it's called, central. 
And that meant that when you invited someone to share your table, you were saying you're part of the family. They copied Jesus by inviting the poor and the outsider in to eat with them and to share that table fellowship. There was no locked door mentality because the door was always open and there was always space at the table. So practically, I want to finish with a couple of things. Firstly this, Jesus always took initiative and took time to invite people. Jesus took the initiative and he invited others into this family. And I want to ask us, um, how do we feel about inviting others to share in the family life that we, we have ourselves? Maybe in our church family life, our personal family life, in who we are. Are we taking the initiative and inviting others? Perhaps we can invite others to our home if we're able. But maybe it's something as simple as making sure we take a lunch break at work and inviting someone else to share food with us. Maybe it's as simple as just finding excuses to celebrate and to party. You know, one of the things that the church should be known for, is known for, is that it's a place of party where we celebrate, where we find reasons to celebrate things to do. Birthdays, uh, events, anniversaries, whatever it might be, find an excuse to party, to celebrate and invite people to join you. You know, it's a simple way of doing it here at St. Paul's. Why don't we take part in the interlunch, uh, which is every Sunday having people around from church for lunch after the service, after 11 o'clock. It's really easy just to get, put, put a casserole on, put some food on, and invite those around if you're able to do that. It's a great way of including and inviting others, creating that culture of invitation. Because we know so often that, actually, I think Mother Teresa said that, that loneliness is the curse of our age. And the way to go against loneliness is invitation. An invitation requires initiative. And I think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. We invite others to come to church. Tear Fund um, did a survey a few years back. And, and they found that 20% of people who don't currently go to church would come if only someone would invite them. That's one in five people. Now, we live in a very packed com- city with a lot of people around us. Many of us will have contact with 20, 30, 40 people a week. If we have contact with 40 people a week, that's a lot, I guess. Eight of them, according to Tear Fund, would be open just to be invited on a Sunday morning. Just would love to come. Why? People love an invitation. People are open to wanting to find out about God, on the whole. Invite people to the life group. Share life together. Invite people into your group of friends. Make space for others in your life. Be someone who wants to include those you meet, especially uh, the lonely. I come back to this again. We're to try to have a place where the door is always open and there's always space at the table. So to finish, Jesus redefines family. Who are my mother and my brothers, he says. I imagine his family at that point found that a really hard thing to hear. But what Jesus is saying is is he's blowing the boundaries off and saying, whoever wants to come can come. The outcasts are welcome. Let's make our family big. Let's include those who are never included. The tax collectors, the prostitutes. Let's bring them together into this melting pot uh, of people and work out how to do life following Jesus together. We know from the rest of the passage that there's opposition in that. It's not an easy thing to do. But we can see in doing that, lives are transformed and changed. So we've got a choice to make, I guess, is that if that happens, if we start inviting others to our family life, into our home, into our life group, into church, that, 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 that'll, that'll change the way things are. And sometimes we find that difficult. 
I don't know if you're like me, but I find change and new people. I kind of sometimes you can look with suspicion. Who are they and why are they here? But you know, we make a choice to make, don't we? I guess the choice is this: Do we celebrate what God is doing? Do we celebrate those who are finding faith? Do we celebrate that lives are being changed, even if that makes us uncomfortable, even if that means things for us have to be different? And I think as church is growing here, as as lives are being changed, people are coming to faith on Alpha and different places that actually people will come in. And I think that'll grow. And I think as we step out and offer that invitation to others, we'll be immensely surprised at who will say yes and who will come and want to find more about Christ and find faith and community and life in his name. So let's be people who welcome others into our lives, into our homes, into our families. Let's blow wide the boundaries of our lives. Let's be people who make space for more friends. Let's be people who make space and time to invest in those relationships. Let's be people who are willing to be uncomfortable so that others can be comfortable and find faith and Jesus and join the family. And if loneliness really is the curse of our modern age, how this week can we include and grow the family? that Jesus has invited us into. Why don't we stand to pray?